Chapter 6 The Search Before beginning his search for the ship, Ras felt an obligation to see what had become of the engine during his extended lunch break. He wasn't sure if simply lying that he got lost in the attack or crazy-sounding truth would do better with Billy, Finn, and Guy. The main entrance to the engine was partially obscured with heavy iron debris, but the doors had been blown off their hinges, allowing Ras to easily climb over the wreckage and inside. Overwhelming heat met him as he entered the main corridor. The acrid burning smell of overworked machinery mixed with the coppery scent of blood filled the air. Bulges in the bulkhead walls indicated the area had suffered major structural damage. Workers busily lined the wide corridors with what Rass assumed to be bodies under sheets. The skeleton crew was shrinking and all Rass could do was blame himself for provoking Bravo Company to swoop in on the ailing city. Billy's office was dark, save for the sparks jumping from some of the dangling light fixtures. Billy? Rass called. Anyone? After waiting a few moments in the dark to collect himself, he made his way to Engine 8 to find a quarter of the crew patching pipes and running about. Curious spotted Rast and immediately changed course to approach him. Where were you? She signed with aggressive gestures. Where? Rast began signing but didn't know how to sign Guy's name, so instead he held a hand over his eye. I don't know. Rast turned to leave, but Kyria grabbed his arm. Help us. Her scared expression broke Rast's heart. I am. He signed before turning to head to the medical unit. Shouts of agony met Rast before he reached his destination. Scores of men and women, all cradling lesser wounds, stood in the hallway, either waiting to be assessed or for one of the beds to become unoccupied. Ignoring protests that he was cutting in line, Rast walked past everyone and peeked inside to see medics bustling in every bed full. You! Someone Rast didn't know shouted from one of the beds with a gash in his temple. He pointed accusingly at Rast. Two of the orderlies moved to restrain him as he attempted to get up from the bed. This is all your fault. They wouldn't have attacked us if they didn't smell blood. He wrestled against the two men. Let me go. Finn turned and noticed Rass. Striding over, he said, I can't have a riot in here. His voice had more sympathy than Rass expected. Where's Billy? Rass asked, eyes flitting among the patients. She manned one of the cannons, Finn said. Rass knew Verdant had its own defenses scattered throughout the perimeter of the city, but didn't know where to find them. Is she still down there? The Sons of Remnants targeted the city's weapons. I haven't received anyone from there yet, and I don't expect to. Finn bowed his head for a moment, the cries of pain beckoning him back into the ward. Please go. What sublevel? Rass asked. Fifteen. Why? Rass bolted into the hallway. He had to get to the defense platform, but found every elevator to be either packed or disabled. Finding a door labeled stairwell, he burst through it and began his descent down the spiral staircase. He had to fight the crowds bringing the injured up to the medical center. He kept an eye out for anyone resembling Billy, but had no luck. Sub-level 15's stairwell door took a hefting to open as the top hinge had broken loose already. He scraped the door open just enough to fit himself through and saw a mostly collapsed ceiling. Apparently sub-level 14 had fallen through, scattering an array of broken pipes and sparking wires. In the non-collapsed portions of the corridor, Rask could make out a row of large seated cannons and piles of cannonballs and barrels bolted to the floor next to them. Daylight flooded in where some of the cannons had moved out to a platform outside of the corridor. Reaching the first cannon, he saw a man seated atop the weapon, slumped over its controls. Next to it dangled a harnessed person whom Rask guessed to be the cannon loader. Billy! Rask called out, scrambling over bent girders and pipes that spat steam irregularly. I haven't found her yet, a boy shouted back, its owner hidden in the wreckage further down the bay. Who's there? Guy stepped out from behind one of the cannons, caked with dust and blood. Oh, you. Rask trudged forward, occasionally tangling his feet in the debris as he walked toward Guy. I thought she worked in the office. Who sent you down here? It was difficult to know what sort of response set off Guy's temper, so Rass answered quickly. Nobody. Where would she be? Guy hoisted a thin sheet of metal bulkhead that had collapsed down over body, and he swore before gently lowering the wreckage. Clearing a wrecked cannon, Rass came close enough to see the bulkhead covering up a bloodied arm. Is that? No, Guy said. 
Her name was Rin, not that you'd care. And why wouldn't I care? Rasfeld his temper flare. I'm as much a son of Verdon as you are. Guy huffed in grim amusement. I'm Maronian, you idiot. He paused. And where were you when all this happened, huh? Hiding? Rasp became very aware that he didn't bear a single battle scar from the attacks. No, I was... He stopped, avoiding the bait. Never mind. He turned his attention to the next section of wreckage. I already looked there. Where were you? Guy narrowed his eye at Rass. You weren't at eight when we needed you. I was trying to figure out a way to save Verdant, Rass said. And how'd that work out? Guy asked, gesturing to the wreckage. I, I can get Helios engines installed. Guy stared at Rass with a blank expression before throwing his head back with a laugh. Well, why didn't you say so? Did India Bravo offer you that? He spat. Or how about Foster Helios III himself? Oh, wait. Let's make it a crazy Veer family tradition and say it was Hal Napier. Shut up. Rass reached forward to shove Guy, but quickly found his forward momentum used against him, and he hit the ground. He spun around, launching himself at Guy before being thrown back down in the same fashion. You do not get to talk about my father. Why not? He let Marin sink. He did everything he could and then some to stop Bravo Company from taking Verdon, but when the next-door neighbor faced the same threat, nothing. Guy looked down at the young man, and he could have. He could have so very easily fought that fight again if half of what everyone says about him was true. But he let India Bravo slaughter half the city and push most of the second half off the side just to see if she could make a convergence. Rask considered continuing the fight, but knew that every moment spent squabbling was another that Billy might need to survive. Bet nobody told you that story, huh? Guy asked. Did you ever realize that he skipped town just after the Maronian refugees arrived? He wasn't on a mission from some long-dead savior. He just couldn't live with himself after looking into the faces of everyone he let down. Guy clenched his jaw. His fist shook in anger. So where were you when we needed you? Rass picked himself up and stared at Guy, then beyond. Looking out of the open bay doors, Rass saw one of the cannons outside on the gunnery platform and a mop of curly hair adorning the gunner. Billy! Guy turned to look and they dashed toward the open bay doors. Rass stopped immediately upon seeing the five-foot-long rail system leading to the cannon wasn't designed for people to walk on it, and the fact that the cannon hung in midair at the end of the rail certainly didn't make him feel any more confident. He looked down at the foot-wide beam and the sea of clouds below blinded him momentarily, as his eyes had grown accustomed to the dark of the sublevel. Are you all right? Are you all right? Rass shouted. He couldn't tell if her head moved or if it was the wind just shifting her hair around. There's a lever on the cannon that calls it back. Guy said. Why don't you pull it? Rast asked. Guy pointed with his eye patch. I don't do depth perception. Against this better judgment, Rast stepped one foot on the beam leading out to the cannon, then another. He cautiously walked forward until a gust of wind made him lose his balance for a moment. Waving his arms wildly, he caught himself before lunging forward to grasp the back of Billy's seat. Pulling himself up and then alongside the cannon, Rast nearly bumped into a harnessed young man slumped against the weapon. Billy's glassy eyes peered down at Rast as her left hand clutched a dark spot surrounding a bullet wound in her chest. She's alive! Rass looked around a small platform until he spotted a lever. He disengaged the safety and pulled it back. The cannon ratcheted back into Verdant, and the bay door slammed shut behind it. He clambered up to Billy as she slumped in her seat. Hey, hey, stay with me. Let's get you to Finn, alright? She moved her eyes slowly to look at Rass, whom Guy quickly pushed aside. Guy unfastened her restraints to ease her down to the ground with Rass's help. Don't you dare leave me, Guy said, cradling her head. Billy said something too softly for Rass to hear, so he pulled in close. What's that? Rask could smell the blood, sweat, and grease mixed in with a tang of gunpowder. Again, she mouthed, this time with a faint smile. Home. Billy went slack. Guy gently closed her eyelids. She didn't deserve this. The world spun on Rass. His staunchest defender was gone. Tears formed, and he made no pretense of strength. I don't care if you believe me or not, Guy, but I talked to Hal Napier. Guy remained silent. 
He was the one who stopped the attack on Verdant, not in time. I know, Rast said, then paused. I'm sorry about Marin, and I'm sorry about Billy. Don't say her name, Guy said, shooting a glare at Rast. Rast continued unflinching. But my father wasn't a coward. He died trying to save Verdant, he thought for a moment. And I'm probably going to follow in his footsteps, but that isn't going to stop me from trying. Guy continued to cradle Billy, his breathing slow and labored. I don't want to see your face again unless you make good on that promise. The ache of Billy's loss had fully settled in by the time Rass reached the salvage yard. Years ago, he had selected all of the components for the copper fox when he built her. Slade, the owner of the yard, rubbed his old bald head, leaving a smudge of grease atop it. Sorry, Rass. I know how much you meant to you, Slade said, kicking a small compression coil back to one of the massive piles of scrap. I'm not saying who I sold the parts to. I just want to see if I can buy one part back for sentimental value, Rass said. Never heard of someone trying to buy a bad luck charm. Besides, how'd you like it if you had a half dozen guys chasing you down trying to get back the parts he had picked out for the fox? If they made me decent offers, no, Rass, you lost your ship for good reason. You're lucky I don't contact the guy that bought your ship to warn him you'd be by. Buy my ship? Not ship parts, Rass thought. All right, Slade, you in. Sorry I asked. Slate swallowed hard. You know, Rass, you really did a lot of us a bad turn. Some folks sell little things like books or hats. They pack up their shop and set up somewhere new. How am I going to move any of this stuff anywhere? He asked, gesturing to the piles of parts. I, I don't know, but I'm doing everything I can to put things right. Slade grunted and spat on the ground. Searching the undamaged sections of the docks for the Copper Fox would take at least a full day, as they made up 80% of the perimeter of Verdant. There were thousands of slips to check, and even to begin to start looking in the right area, Rast would need a guide. He needed Old Harley. Rast considered checking the hospital before deciding to see if Old Harley wasn't already back home on a ship, and if that ship hadn't been decimated during the attack. It took an hour on foot for Rast to make his way to the western docks while safely avoiding anyone from Port Authority. Old Harley's decrepit airship was more of a house than a wind merchant vessel ever since he removed the collection tank to make room for a living room. Atop the ship, the man himself sat in a wheelchair, surveying the smoke billowing from Verdant. Rass pulled in close alongside his ship and softly called up. Harley! He could hear the squeak of the wheelchair inching to the edge. Who's there? Harley, I don't have much time. Someone bought my ship, and I need to convince whoever it was that I needed to save Verdant. Erasmus? Harley asked, poking his head over the railing. You were right. My dad had a mission from Hal Napier, and if I can get my ship and do the job for him, then he'll replace the engines on Verdant. I knew it! Harley exclaimed a little too loudly. How do I find my ship, Harley? Quickly. Oh. Go to the dock registry terminal at the south port, he said as two members of Port Authority walked by. Good afternoon, Shane. Cademan? He nodded to the men, then waited until they left. Look at the ships added in the last week, Harley said. Whoever bought it probably renamed it. Thanks, Harley, Rest said. Now hurry up before I report you, old Harley said with a smile. Get my regards to Hal. Another half hour brought him to the Port Authority terminal with a logbook. Most men were busy putting out fires on some of the airships, and Rass ran up to the book, flipping to the end of the log. There had only been one new ship registered on the docks in the past week. Name? The Onloa Ann. Registrant? Freddie Tibbs. Rass made the long walk to the southern docks and arrived at the Onloa Ann slip about 5.30. He passed by the space reserved for the Veer family and remembered how his mother used to take him there as a small child to see Elias off before each collection run. He'd hug Elias's leg, begging him not to leave, and Emma would comfort him, telling him that Daddy would be home before he knew it. 
So Little Rass would plant himself on the dock after the Silver Fox had left, and then he would call, Dad? Every time an airship passed by until Emma had to explain to him that he would be gone for days, not minutes. Seeing the empty slip made those emotions well up. He now understood why his mother had accompanied Elias to the dock before every trip to kiss him goodbye. In a matter of minutes, Rass arrived at the slip for the Onloan. There sat the copper fox, garishly decorated with party lights and some deck furniture. He could hear a muffled rhythm from inside as he approached the gangplank. Music? Tibbs? No response. Rass called out again. The music coming from below deck softened before the footsteps grew and out walked Freddy Tibbs, whose outfit consisted of a dingy bathrobe, shorts, and sandals. The drink in his hand completed the ensemble. Slade said you'd probably be by, Tibbs said, a touch inebriated. I'm just glad she wasn't chopped up, Rass said, trying to ease his way into the inevitably awkward question he knew he'd have to ask. Chopped up? No. Gutted, yes, he said, uncaring. Couldn't get the tank out, though. Too big. Rass's fist tightened, and the pain fed the frustration. Uh, yeah, had to build the ship around that. What happened to your old ship? It's a few slips down. Dad said I needed to get my own place, and this thing was dirt cheap. Your old ship doesn't have a captain's quarters? Rass asked, trying to hold back his anger. It does, but who wants to live and work in one place? It gets old fast, Tib said, then motioned for Rass to come aboard. I'm being rude. Do you want anything to drink? You don't want it me compromised right now, Rass thought. No, I'm good. Suit yourself. Tibbs watched Rass walk across the gangplank. I thought about fixing her up to sell to one of the pilots that lost their ship in the attack, and demand's high right now, but, you know, there's something reassuring about having a backup. Beats no ship at all, Rass said. Or I might use her as a transport. People would pay well to get a ride off this city. He eyed Rass, gauging what reaction the suggestions would bring. Slade said you wanted to buy a piece of her for nostalgia. Rass remained silent. Tell you what. If it won't make the ship fall apart by prying it loose, it's yours. I wanted to redecorate anyway, he said. How about the keys? Rass said, half-joking. Tibbs let out a big belly laugh. You lost her fair and square, Rassy. Besides, you can't even fly anything bigger than a paper airplane without a license. I was offered a job. Oh? You want to save up and buy her back? I'm not that attached. I'd need a ship, but if I do the job, then the Collective will replace the scoop engines on Verdon with Helios ones. Verdon would be safe. Just in time for Bravo Company to take over, Tib said. Do you think I'm stupid enough to believe a story like that and just loan you the ship? You know, you know what? Never mind. She's not on the market. You screwed things up for everybody, and now you're trying to steal my house. So, you go before I call Port Authority. Why? You invited me aboard. For skipping on community service, Tib said. Rash shook his head and began to walk away. Tell your mother I'll give her a discount if she needs a ride off this forsaken city, and I know she needs it, Tib said. Well, I guess there are other ways to get on ships. Something broke. Rass spun on his heel and threw a fist into Tib's jaw. The larger wind merchant fell back a couple steps, then planted himself back on the deck, tripping over his own feet. He blinked dumbly as Rass shook out his hand. I'm calling the sheriff, Tib shouted. Good, Rass said. Maybe I'll get an extra month. I hear seven is lucky. He turned to walk back to the residential zone. Day one was coming to a close, and he was quickly running out of ideas of how to illegally procure a ship. As Rass walked back to his house, he spotted a fair face peeking at him from the basement window before it disappeared. Soon Callie ran out to meet him. 
Any leads? She asked. Tips has the fox, but he'd never sell it to me, Raz said. Not that I have any way to buy it from him. Callie looked lost in thought for a moment. I talked to people from university, but nobody had a ship they're willing to loan or part with, she said. Ras, nobody expects this from you, except you. I'm not saying you should give up, just don't ask too much from yourself, okay? Ras nodded. Maybe I could go talk to Tibbs. Ras was about to protest when the front door of the Veer home swung open. Sheriff Pauling and three deputies exited. Rasmus, how's your hand feeling? Verdant is burning, and this is what you're focusing on? Ras asked, earning a forceful cuffing from one of the deputies. Emma mouthed a silent, I'm sorry, to Ras. The ceiling of the jail cell was becoming far too familiar as Rass lay on the hardwood cot staring up. Sheriff Pauling had tried several times to get the young man to talk, but Rass's silent treatment had finally earned him his solitude and Pauling went home to his family. Evening turned to night, which brought fitful sleep and half-remembered dreams of a giant Tibbs picking up the copper fox and pulling it apart the way a toddler would with a toy too complex for him. At about four o'clock, Verdant faltered for a moment, jolting Rass awake in the middle of a falling nightmare. Sleep didn't return. The second day passed with no visitors and no sure answer from Pauling as to how long he would spend in the cell. His only consolation was the absence of more attack sirens. On the morning of the third day, the sheriff's office came to life around 7.30. Pauling walked up with a set of keys. Bales posted. Rass eased his sore body from the cot, massaging a crick in his neck as the cell door ratcheted open. He looked up at Pauling, confused, until the sheriff stepped aside, revealing Emma. She stood with her hands folded as Rass left the cell. We need to talk. Emma had borrowed Mr. Torbion's skiff to come to the sheriff's office. As they both climbed inside, she said, I don't blame you. Rast didn't know if she meant for Verdant, wanting to take Hal's mission, or skipping community service. He hoped all three. The skiff took off with a high-pitched whine before Emma spoke. I think we try to control everything we can so life works out how we want, but you can only control yourself, and even then it's not simple. Mom, I don't have an airship. I'm not going. Emma didn't say anything until they arrived at the engine entrance. She pulled a sack lunch from the back seat and handed it to Rass. Her eyes began to tear up. I love you, Rass. Don't forget that. He accepted the brown bag, wishing he understood this new wave of emotion. Never have, never will. She grabbed his hand and squeezed it as though she were doing it for the last time before letting him exit. The full day of work consisted of Rass cleaning up an oil spill, this time alone. I guess this is their version of solitary confinement, he thought, and wondered if it was for his own protection. He wasn't allowed to eat in the mess hall. He wasn't even allowed to have more than ten minutes for lunch, and when he asked for a bandage after cutting his forearm on an old pipe, his request was ignored. When the names of those who died in the attack were broadcasted throughout the engine as a makeshift memorial, it was all he could do to not feel personally responsible for every name read. He was grateful for his solitude when Billy's name was read. Flexing his hands, which were sore from too many hours clenched tightly around a mop handle, he left the building to go home. Ahead, he spotted Callie waiting for him. How was your day? Callie asked innocently. Better now, he said, starving for a friendly face. You didn't have to come out here. I wanted to. Are you up for a walk? He wasn't, but obliged anyway. I never got to ask, what was, uh, what was Hal Napier like? And how is he still alive? Rass finished for her with more energy than he knew he currently possessed. He says he's 164 years old, but he looks like he's 60. Had eyes that bore straight through you when he was mad or annoyed. Did you make him mad? Callie asked. I was challenging from time to time. Rass looked around and realized they were heading east. Where are we going? I have a small package to pick up, and I wanted you to be there when I do, she said. Can I guess? Sure, if you like. Any hints? He asked. Nope. I've always been too good at guessing when I give clues. 
It's annoying. He had to concede the point. When they had played the game as children, she would always come up with the wildest guesses while Rass's pragmatic deductions hit closer to the mark. Is it a book? Nope. Typewriter ink? Why would I want you to be there when I picked up typewriter ink? She laughed. It was a valid question. I don't know, maybe you're branching out to blue and it's a big moment for you. Rass laughed. It felt good to laugh again. It felt like a moment stolen away from the oppression of India Bravo's looming fleet. This is bigger than blue ink. Oh, a clue. Hardly. Most things are bigger than trying blue ink, she said, pushing him. Jewelry. Mm, I suppose it could be, she said. You can stop guessing. They stood outside a hardware store. Your first socket wrench set. Big moment. She made a sour face at him. Stay here. I'll be right back. She disappeared inside the door and returned within three minutes with a small brown paper sack. Something clinked inside it as she walked. All right. Now with it. Hold on. This requires a little decorum, she said. Rass looked around at the shopping center and couldn't imagine a less worthy place for decorum. Erasmus Fear the Third. First. Third sounds more important. Also sounds more inaccurate. Fine. Erasmus Fear the First, she said, affecting a formal accent that Rass didn't recognize. Yes, Callista Torbian? Before I show you what's in the bag, you have to answer three questions. All right, said Rass. First, do you solemnly swear that you would do everything within your means to save Verdant? The request of an oath brought him back to his trial a little too easily. Rass cocked his head slightly. She was being serious. He took a quick breath and said, Yes, I do. Second, do you absolutely promise that if you saw me in danger, you'd save me from whatever it was? A million times over, he thought. As long as it didn't kill me first, he said. Yes. Last one. If I offer you what's in this bag, will you promise me something that you can't say no to? Rass had to think for a moment as to where she was going with this. He still didn't know what was in the bag, but he would find some way to jump over the moon if she were to just ask. Yes, I promise. She reached her hand into the bag, then stopped. Remember, you can't say no now. I know, he said. From the bag, she procured a keyring with a set of airship keys. You're taking me with you.